from myself, your host, Chase Ricker, in the Bombay Southeast, and on behalf of my comrade, Joshua Blue, in the Placid Northwest, I offer you greetings, America. On this week's show, we step back in time to an era in this country with familiar civil unrest, a burgeoning distrust of the news we're given and who we're receiving it from. It's also an era of a lot less hair conditioner. The year is 1976, and it's where we find ourselves on this week's episode of The Digest Show. Let go! Joshua. Chase, my man. I'm as mild as hell, and I'm not going to take that anymore! Absolutely. On this episode two of The Digest Show, we're getting right to the belly of the media beast with 1976's Network. Directed by Sidney Lumet, with an original screenplay from the mercurial Patty Chayefsky. My dude, we have an all-star ensemble cast. Oh, one of the best. Uh, just, I mean, one of the best. What can you say? I have some things to say. We have uh, Faye Vavavum Dunaway, Robert, don't call me Tom Hagen Duvall, William Holden, and of course, the most memorable performance of them all, one Peter Finch. There's a myriad of role players here. Um, I think we're going to be touching on two single scene-stealing award winners for the most mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd just like to get right to the top of it. Um, there's two things from the very beginning of this film that are going to be abundantly clear and upheld throughout. The first thing is this man's breakdown is never going to be taken for what it really is, sincerely um, or treated as such. And the other thing is that from the start, this film has this air of realism in a way, um, starting with the narration. Mm. And I'd like to kind of start there. And I know that this is like right in your wheelhouse of critique, and it's just one of your things for sure. So maybe what can what did you find um, as far as the writing and the directing background? What lent itself um, to to the real as the realism aspect of this film? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, well, to just kind of start with that with that narration part. Yeah, um, let's do it. You know, that it's a small, small part of the film, but just like in any film, it seems like narration has a way of like leaving its mark. When it's there, it's there, and it matters, right? Is it only like three times, maybe? Uh, three or four. I didn't count the specific ones. Uh, there's a really long pause between the first narration and the second narration. But then after the second one, I think that there's two more after that, that kind of pick up quicker. Um, but yeah, I mean, it gives it the narration. It's just kicking it right off the layers of this film, the way this thing works reminds me of, uh, another film, uh, Synecdoche, New York, written by Charlie Kaufman, you know, much newer film, but it reminds me of that in the sense that the television aspect is so real and, Mm. and it, and they put on a live television show to film it, to make a movie. And that sense of things comes off very much. So, uh, it feels, feels almost like a documentary in a weird way. That's what I was thinking. It's precisely like like a docuseries or a news report that you, it starts with, yeah, it starts with a collage and it, and it, with the narration as it's like, you're in the bullpen. You're even throughout the film. It's a very personable film, the way it's shot and, and the scenes you see. Um, and it really plays on that, you know, it's more complex than the duality, but of it being quote unquote, real news and entertainment, um, 
it, it yeah. sets it sets a really good tone. I mean, because you yeah. move from that right into uh, this kind of a montage of the major network buildings all weaved together in New York, and that kind of gives this sense of reality uh, sure. because there are the three real ones interwoven with UBS, and from there you move into this kind of shot through the newsroom and the control rooms and everything moving slow, showing you very deliberately how the stuff's being done. And, you yeah. know, uh, Sidney Lumet and Patty Chayefsky worked in television and it's obvious, you know, that's what I wanted to get to. Yeah. yeah, I know. We're not the, we're not going to be the first to like have that revelation, but it's, it shows so clearly that those dudes were a part of, and specifically what I came to understand live television. Yeah, before they made the switch to kind of a pre-recorded, taped version of everything, mm -hmm. uh, they worked in live television, and that's what really kind of comes off. Sure. Um. So, what I touched on when we first started, the, this man is talking about his his wife. Did, like, remind me, does she die or does she, yeah she dies right? Uh, Howard Beale's wife. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh huh. She dies after thirty something years of shrill, meaningless marriage. He's confiding in an old friend and who someone who happens to be his boss. Correct. There are two old friends that are properly pissed, I believe, is the phrasing that they're used, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. I loved. Man, there's so many good nuggets from the original screenplay that are just they're dynamite. In any, case, in any case, this, his old friend is sitting there with the bottom as he's in this moment of despair, and, he's, and he, he makes a joke all about it. What kind of show can we make out of this? He's not even really sincerely consoling his friend in that moment. Um, and it's it's absurd. That's a big part of this movie. You made one connection to another film um, that that I wanted to make another one. The like kind of weird quasi comedy. Um, it's called like a satirical drama, right? Which mm. we could we're going to talk about that later for Absolutely. sure. But one film that reminded me of tone wise was a film like American Psycho. Where the mm. darkness and the comedy of it is like, mm. should I be laughing right now? I Absolutely. This is really freaking me out. Um, it's it's personable. It's dark, but it also has this tinge of humor to it. And that's that's something that I was thinking of while I was watching the film for sure. Absolutely, hundred percent agree. And we will, you know, that's going to be one of the central things I think that we do get to uh, a little later. But absolutely, the black the black humor. It, it's. Um, that 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 feeling has grown with time and that's why we experience that movie that mm. way it's got to be and uh but no i absolutely agree i absolutely agree and i think you know um the film does it is odd it's i found myself i, I rewatched this film odd, an absurd it? amount of times in, in preparation for this podcast and the first few times i watched the film were for just pure my own entertainment yeah. And I think I was so fucking awestruck by the just realness and how I, and I think I was, it was like a one, two punch for me by the realness hit me first. And then the second thing that hit me was like, holy shit, this was 45 years ago that, 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 that yeah. this was that somebody conceived of this 45 years ago and they were a double bullseye on point, 100% correct. I think that I was the most surprised about that, and I, it really gave me pause to think about, not to get too dramatic and misty-eyed, but it, 50, 60 years is not that long ago. 40 years is no. not that long ago. And to think about where we've come and how different it is from then and how small that margin is, is it's still such a, an appropriate commentary on 
the state of the media today. And, you know, we, and at first, you know, when we were talking about doing this film, we were kind of nervous about maybe a political slant or something like that. But really, it's such a sincere critique of the media and the voice of, of this country and, you know, and other countries as well, of course. But of this country specifically, there's so many specific cultural references to the 70s. This movie is 70s as fuck. 70s as fuck. As fuck. Yeah. From the clothes to the hair to the Ford. The content. The content, yeah, it's very of its time, and also applies to today. Absolutely, it's, yeah, it's and, such a useful piece of artwork. One thing, you know, since we're still at the beginning of this conversation, I'm glad you yeah, brought man. up the, our uh, beginning fear of the political of taking it and being too political. Uh, one of the things that kind of started to quell that nervousness for me, especially in mm. the last few days, as I I dug a lot deeper into the the film, is uh, it is. It's almost an apolitical critique. It's so it's it, you right when you would want to go like this is a leftist kind of critique. Mm -hmm. They also just spoof the ever loving shit out of real leftist groups, right? Absolutely. While also just completely degrading the greed of the whole right centric business centric group, and it's it's almost sure. an apolitical. Uh, report you know and that's that's the cool that was one of the things that kind of made me feel a little better is like you know you don't even have to get political this is just factual the news is produced it is what uh you know patty chayofsky envisioned absolutely it is that you know it's just it's streamlined and they've gotten better at it and they've kind of made it more mainstream kind of camouflaged it in a way sure. so it still feels newsy you it's know? a sim like, it's assimilated into our daily life in the way that we don't notice it and as such a shocking way as you might have when it first started to turn this this shock journalism this yellow journalism um it, it's like i said it's been assimilated it's not as obvious yeah and it, it and i think you know just to kind of cap that part up too is is it so clear that they've gotten good at it because, you know, you've got Sean Hannity, Anderson Cooper, and Rachel Maddow, and they all get to lean into their one-third share of the world or of the country that, that watch cable news because they split yeah. themselves, you know, like tribes. And they get to lean into tribal. their desk yeah. and take their glasses off and make a, a stinging, searing Look point. I and, mean, this. and they get to feel like Cronkite and, you know, like those news people of yesteryear. And yeah. they get to feel that way, even though they actually are doing nothing more than what Howard Beale was doing, you know, after he loses his mind. In and, a way, yeah. Yeah, it's because uh, they're just at it. They're just offering editorial commentary, whether yeah. it's relevant or not. You know, it's just sure. it's not news. Not sure. much anymore. So, well, you used a word there that uh, I, I want to get to is you, you use the word shares, and this the vocabulary of the film when it starts. It's using points and shares. It's talking about ratings, and that's absolutely. And to be honest, I don't specifically know the increments with which they're speaking and no. the, the monetary conversion. But they're talking about money. They're talking about ratings, and that's what they give a shit about in this yep. film. Yep. And I think this film, UBS, this fic fictitious news network. Um, let's get to Howard Beale's first breakdown, if that's okay with you. Sure, sure, absolutely. Good place to start. Yeah, I mean, I mean, his first breakdown in the sense of, um, when 
I just want for our clarification for when he, when he um, first says that he's going to kill himself or after when he's put back on the air. When he first says he's going to kill himself. Okay, yeah, cool. Let's tackle two things first here. That and the introduction of the Diana character. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think those two things coincide. There's a thing that happens in this film where scenes are back-to-back that, um, whether allegorically mirror each other, they complement mm-hmm. each other, mm-hmm. and specifically at the end. And I think this is one of those instances. Um, what, are the, what are your first big takeaways from Howard's uh, uh, admission that he wants to kill himself on air? That scene. Yeah, I mean, I think that scene is uh, completely connected to the scene with him and uh, William Holden in the bar. So yeah. Max and Howard are in the bar, you know, commiserating over the career, and Howard's becoming depressed. And yeah. and Max is in this – he's also in a sullen place because his best friend, and he can smell the tides are changing, and he's making this sick joke about what – they could do to you to to carry out that suicide as howard first brings it up in a, in a joke a true joke at that time um i think that that scene and howard's first admission is just this eerie for foreshadowing for the rest yeah. of the film that's that's the box that i put it in i see it as this this like tale to you like this is where this vehicle is going the foreshadowing part of it is so ominous because in the bar with his old friend and colleague, and again in the studio, while he says this thing, no one really pays attention or notices. There's two people, two producers, who don't even notice that he says what he says. And mm. someone says, what the fuck is going on? Did you hear what he just said? And they're laughing. They're like, what? Oh, no, I wasn't paying attention. So the sincerity with which people are, obviously, the network, I believe, is not doing well. No, So this not. might be a glimpse into what a poor news network looks like. In the sense of attention to detail, go ahead. Absolutely. With your it, yeah. Well, if I can interject one kind Please of. Please uh, do, my friend. You know, because when we weave here, we're going to weave from in between the film and then into commentary. And like one of the yeah. things that struck me in particular about what you were just saying is with Patty and Sydney working in television um, uh-huh. and some of the interviews and commentary that I, I consumed for this, they, they made it very clear that, that that attitude you see in the control room at UBS at the beginning is 100% par for the course because these people viewed their job as, oh, well, there's always tomorrow's show. We can kind of redeem ourselves, you know, as long as the train yeah. stays on the tracks kind sure. of idea, you know? And that in particular just shows you why the, and we're going to say the news a lot here. And when I say that, I mean the entire industry of the news, the, the okay. way the news works. Uh, that shows you why the news was so easily and so readily taken over by entertainment programming uh-huh. and turned into what it is. Because they didn't – they weren't invested in what they were doing. They didn't, I, I don't think that these people felt like they were on a mission. Responsible. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pr- responsible. Yeah. Precisely. Um, so we, and then we meet Diana, which is something I could not wait to talk to you about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that. Okay. So first I'm going to go ahead and make a statement for the whole potty here. Okay. Here uh, we go. I am not a hundred percent sure I've sold myself yet, but Faye's done. Faye Dunaway. Faye's Dunaway, everyone. Faye's, Faye's Dunaway <laughs> eyes. Her Dunaway uh, eyes. Uh, those, uh, 
but uh, no, for real, Faye's eyes in this scene uh, may get the best acting performance of the entire film for me. I mean, there are okay. some some mega, mega chops, but I think what I'm insinuating is Faye Dunaway really may have, she rivals anyone in this film for the best performance. I won't say she does have the best performance, but she rivals anyone else you may name as the best performance. There is no doubt about that. I don't know if it's just her natural looks, her high cheekbones, her thin eyebrows, her 30, 40s old Hollywood look that lends itself to be reminding me of those performances or it's her actual performance. That like quick close up and the gaze to the side and throw a hand up over the forehead in distress. She has that like like very dramatic, vicious, you know, reactive performance. Absolutely. <laughs> and it makes me grip my armchair. It's like, oh shit. Well, I mean, I learned something big I learned in the research part. Give it to is me. The, the reason this film is so fucking good is because everyone involved is it is from the theater, except right. for Bill Holden. He's the only one that was not really a theater actor. And these people, uh, you know, they one of the things that was big in this film is re they rehearse. Sidney Lumet rehearses all of his films and not every film director does that, especially, uh, you know, from what I'm coming to understand the bigger studio pictures with the big names and they have tight schedules and it's just show up. And this is, you know, here's Cindy. Uh, you guys are madly in love, make passionate love to her action. You sure. know, with Sidney Lumet, they, they rehearse these scenes for weeks and what, what, one of the things that he said that struck me super hard is you may think like people would always comment the rehearsal will take some of the the uh, spontaneity out. But he says, no, 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 because when you rehearse, it lets the fear go of what's going to happen. And that is when real spontaneity actually takes place is when you're Isn't not beautiful. Scared. It is it's absolutely beautiful. And it's it shows throughout the entire film because there it feels so more like many, a play. It does. It feels there's, just like a play. I don't want to jump ahead too far, but there's one scene in particular in the end of the kitchen between Max and Diana. That scene, which we're going to get to and dive more into oh, later. Absolutely. But that scene in particular is a good example of it feels like theater. It does. Um, so the people, the actors said it felt more like doing Shakespeare or theater like we touched on. Um, I, I also think it's a really cool tidbit that all of these principles were the director and writer's first choice, I believe. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, so what I... That is true. It, with the exception of uh, Peter Finch, um, he was Patty's Funny, first choice. Glad that worked out. Right. Uh, he was Patty's first choice, but uh, Sidney had an issue with the accent. He, he felt very, very strongly it must be a, a very uh, pure American accent. And the the story goes that Patty comes to him and says, is that the only thing that bothers you? Uh, is that it? Because I just want to try something, if so. And a week later, he gets a tape that's of Peter Finch reading the the cover-to-cover -cover New York Times in an American accent. One he's week, Australian, right? He's Australian. And he did yeah. a lot of theater in London. Right. Um, and uh Sydney said that he he listened to the tape and that was it there was no looking back i mean everyone involved in that film talks about peter finch as one of the best actors they've ever seen in in like person and worked with side note stole lawrence olivier's wife 
Right, right. He's a man of many talents. Hey, man, you know, when you got it, you got it, right? You got it. Uh, let's go back to Diana. Um, yeah, and her office in particular. Let's talk about I mean, that scene. So yeah. The, and- the Ecumenical Liberation Army. Yes. So I had to look it up. I didn't know this off the top of my head. No, it's going to shock everyone. But ecumenical means representing uh, uh, several different groups of of assumedly Christian values. Now, this is another example of a really cultural reference to it's a direct reference to the Patty Hearst heist. Mm-hmm. Um, now she's using this. She she's so excited to have raw footage, right? Absolutely. She says that the American people want someone to articulate their rage. She's it's our first. Uh, instance to see Diana trying to incite sensationalism in the viewership. Your thoughts on this scene? Yeah, I mean, I want to say you quoted her, uh, want someone to uh, articulate their rage. I'll quote her and say, because I think this this film is is so important for history purposes, but she says that Americans are turning sullen after being mm. beaten on all sides from Vietnam, Watergate, a depression, and inflation. They've turned off, shot up, and fucked themselves limp, and nothing works. Nothing works. And, and God damn it. As, as what you see here in that scene is the birth of reality TV, which mm-hmm. is one thing oh, God, that, great is, connection. that is very, very clear. It's the birth of reality TV, but at the, as, as, as grotesque as her take she's right she's absolutely right she's at because all you have to do is fast forward 40 years that was and my where point. are we at what do you, you know exactly that's what we're talking about in the beginning she's it's, so right not much has changed nothing's worked yes yes and i i mean i think oh uh one really interesting tidbit because we're talking about uh, Diana and uh, Faye Dunaway describes Diana as a soulless TV baby with vacant eyes. Um, and like one of the great things, because you never think about this, right? Uh, her agent, her friends, her mother, didn't none want of her to do it, did not want her to play this character because they yeah. were worried that she would get that, that people would actually think of her as that way, right? Yeah, and that's not something you really. Th- I mean, I've thought about actors considering parts. What what's going to be good for my career? This sure. is going to play this role. That, but you never think of them as like being concerned with being so associated with a character that people in the real world will presume you to be a certain way. Like that's in, that's kind of intense. I'm glad that Miss Baba Boom took the role for oh, God's sakes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I don't like to play favorites, but I think she might be my favorite performance. There's so many powerhouse ones, but hers is just, it's such a big part of the structure of the film and such a lamppost of what we're comparing. I mean, uh, I think every every character, every main in this film gets their own monologue. Um, yeah, it's I a film of monologues, loses, if you will. It is. I think she loses the battle of the monologues, but I think she wins the war of the performance. And that's oh, kind of Joshua. That was beautiful. Thank you, sir. Thank <laughs> you, man. That was completely off the top of the dome. Not scripted at all, folks. That's what you're that's getting how, here. That's how we do things here. Is I have my <laughs> multiple word documents pulled up. <laughs> oh, so okay, I think this brings. Next. I think this brings us to his. He gets a second chance, right? Which let's talk about that for a second before we analyze his second uh, outburst, if you will. Get it? Would do you think that would happen today? 
No. Hell no. No. Um, not at all. And the for only for one reason, because the the only reason Howard gets to to have this next tirade, the bullshit tirade, is because it's my favorite one because it has the the comedy tinge to it. It does. It it's does. It's just like I had enough of this bullshit. Absolutely. And and he's so right, but we'll get there in one second. I think okay. the, okay. but, but the point I wanted to set the stage with is the only reason he gets to go back on that air is because Max has decided to flip a big fat finger to everyone above him. If if he had just been patient, like Ruddy right. says, or if Ruddy had just given him a little tip that night that, hey, I'm in this with you kind of a thing, right. uh, Howard would have never went back on the air. He would have never gotten that far. I think this is a good point to remind everyone that Max is the old guard. Absolutely. And that's why he throws this middle finger. Um, And he's, I think I referenced it earlier. This is like a film of allegories and metaphors and microcosms. And Max is, he, he's the old news. He's, they're not doing it his way anymore. They're not doing journalism anymore. They're doing entertainment. You know, when someone says to you, even the news needs a little producing or entertainment, they say, that 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 Edward R. Murrow, Walter Cronkite sort of news is on the way out because, as we referenced earlier, shit wasn't working. It wasn't comforting people. No. It wasn't distracting or solving anything. Nope. Um, I, I love he, – he says the first bullshit Howard does, and the producers decide on that broadcast to pay attention, and they turn around and plead to Max either in a verbal or physical gesture, and he goes, he goes, he's right. I don't know what you want me to say. Yeah. He's right. He does he's, like he's saying life's bullshit. He's right. He's, Why do you care? Click. It's great. It, there's several instances where he still loves his friend. And you know, the big breakdown and of the movie is Howard Beals, obviously, the quotes and the 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 monologues and stuff. But Max is having a fucking midlife crisis too. And Absolutely. And it's his, at the end of the day, that's still his his old friend. And there's there's some like I said, there's several instances where he comes to his aid and you know, it, it, maybe not physically. Like, um, there's an argument he could be being a, a, a poor friend to Howard, but um, I, I really love that part of it. It's one of the the few like, you know, warm endearing facets of the film. Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't. I would never argue that he's being a bad friend to Howard. I actually believe that um, Holden's care for for excuse me. Uh, William Holden is the actor, obviously, but yeah. Max's care for Howard is is there the whole time. I mean, he wants he wants him he wants to pull him off the air when he knows he's had an actual breakdown. When the when the voice starts talking to him, Max wants to take him off the air because he knows yeah. he's wrong. He's he's the and first one that pulls him aside and says, "I think you're having a breakdown, my dude." He does, and you know that's a that's such a it's so interesting that you say that about. Max as being the old guard because he he definitely does and even again like you said this whole film is just riddled with metaphors and analogies and allegory and so on and so forth and take you know, your literary it, term and insert it, here it is right <laughs> <laughs> insert here uh, but Holden uh, he he represents Bill Holden at represents old Hollywood too you know and this has got a lot of old Hollywood yeah you know I mean. Bonnie and Clyde was one of those films that kind of brought on that new golden era avant-garde cinema of the 60s and 70s, you know, and yeah, she obviously participated in that. And yeah, of course. she represents that 
new spirit of Hollywood. And that's one of the things in this one that it's just such smart choices throughout the entire thing. I think that's, I think to take a step back for a moment, the seventies in a lot of ways is a transition period in general. And, uh, and this movie's, as we said, are very astute, professional, um, concise, and beautifully worded 70s as fuck commentary on this film. It's really apropos. Yeah, absolutely. And funny how the seven, like you said, the 70s is like the, it's like the El Camino of decades. Mm. I mean, I just had, it's a little dirty. I mean, yeah, it's it's trans. Everybody, everybody got their teeth fixed after this movie. (laughs) everybody everybody everybody. um don't call me tom hagen duval but to kind of come back to to max and in particular william holden playing him you know representing that old hollywood but max also is the only character you reference the old guard and Mm. what struck me so much about that is you know we sometimes have this uh stupid human problem of casting people as these godlike individuals and saying this person was amazing like you know i hear people say all the time our founding fathers would but well they you know they've got their problems too and cronkite cronkite probably had started you know you know what i mean but i think the point being is that max through the whole film retains this single understanding that what he is doing is wrong when he cheats on his wife and he knows that Howard going back on the air is wrong and he he just knows he continues to keep this compass about him even though he gets corrupted he Mm. still keeps he knows he's corrupted where's the other (laughs) when he leaves his wife he's like offering this running commentary like he's so honest with his wife like listen this is fucked i'm sorry right but i have to do this and then when he he leaves his lover he goes listen this is just what happens and and i think and i think that's an example of where he comes from the way he handles his business professionally and apparently privately he's a really interesting character it, it, he is. He is. Yeah. I think the only character that's more honest than Max is Diana. She's Diana, more honest, but I have. But the difference is, I have sympathy for Max. Oh yeah, uh, Diana yeah. is a, a sociopath. She, what is she? A desolate, cold, young woman. There's, there's, there's so many great lines in the screenplay that describe her. You know, I mean, James Joyce would have a fucking field day. Just, just, just setting the tone for her, man. Just yeah. throw a million words at that thing. Uh, yeah. So anyway, point made. The the the, the uh, opposing Hollywood and the old guard, new guard. I mean, it just this film is just. Um, I don't know. It's so again. You, I just, I keep going back to the way it's so layered and so rich mm. in so many different depth. We we picked something thick to chew on. That's for sure. That's true. So after this second breakdown, the kind of tone of how the network wants to approach Howard Beale um, shifts, and it's led by Diana's character. She she says she sees Howard Beale as a modern-day prophet. She starts wanting to push um, and bending the perception of the character to push on the audience, which is a big turning point in the film. She sees it as an opportunity and not a problem, which is a, a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think... Um, 
right right after Howard's bullshit monologue, Diana goes into Hackett and sells him on what what you're saying. This is an opportunity we have to take it. And that scene is is you know, it, it's somewhat, it, it is obviously it's important, uh, but the one that strikes me that's kind of in the same vein is actually, I, I believe, the next scene where they're at the lunch table. In that's the, the next place I was going. I wanted yeah. to establish that the network is starting to get behind this as a way to sensationalize, entertain, and not tell news. Um, yes. So the next scene that we want to get to is that, that board meeting, that luncheon, with those delicious Caesar salads they're having. <laughs> right. I mean... Um, they they actually do look really good. The leaves are big. So that's kind <clears> of good, a, pro, good produce in the seventies. Uh, there's a lot about the executives table that that hits me, but I I have to say, my favorite thing there's a there, it's a juicy. Don't take story. my take. Don't take my quote. Don't take my quote. You take yours first. There we go. Problem solved. We're not a respectable network. We're a whorehouse network, and we have to take whatever we can get. Yes. Yeah. That's that's part of mine. I think. For me, that's 100% right, and that is perfect. the perfect segue to say that Cheney's character in yeah. this film. Can I say I, something personally? When I saw that character, I knew that you were going to love his arc and his turn. Yeah, it's I his arc. I saw that you, yeah. It's a, it, it is the, if you were to strip everything away you could tell just that man's story and it would almost tell the story of the film it, his arc follows so his indignation i don't fancy myself the president of a whorehouse you and know? then and then fast forward and he's let's thank everyone for i Diana know she's beautiful i know she's intelligent but let's show her how we feel an utter cheerleader and it's it's like that's what corruption looks like people sell themselves nice. yeah they sell themselves into not feeling like what they knew was wrong is wrong and his character is just so and this also let's not understate that this is where hackett really like busts out the flex on everybody and is like no this is how you sit down you know that yeah. that's my quote right there Give your indignation baby. is duly recorded. Mm -hmm. Now sit down. You can always resign tomorrow. Got you. That's Love my it. quote from the scene. His, Love it. That's a straight flex on hacking. Yeah. And the other like metaphor, a symbolic part of this scene that really, really, really hits me is when he says, uh, so in principle, what are we at, what are we uh, discussing here? Gentlemen, simply adding editorial commentary to the news hour. So that that right there is the psychology of greed and of um, of greed that makes someone know that they are putting a mentally ill individual on national television and they are exploiting them, but yeah. he can boil it down into we're just adding commentary and that's how you get the masses to do terrible things you you strip it down from the actual the actual detail of what's going on and make mm. it some vague overarching way and people buy in oh yeah let's add commentary well what if the commentary is coming from a complete absurd a place yeah sure you know and it's i think that that scene is just it's one of many that just i mean this this whole fucking movie is like an epically hot take on TV. I mean, hot the whole take. Thing. Hot take. Yeah. 
Um, so that's I, my lunch table game. Well, I had a great meal. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> uh, moving on. Uh, eventually, Diana and Max get together. Mm. Now, we did a little peekaboo, you and me, earlier and talked about this a couple days ago. Um, I really love the way you put um, the way she used to think about him. And uh, there's a really great illusion in that, that scene in his office at night. Uh, your takeaways from that that scene. It, okay. It's going to be hard for me to get into any of the Max and Diana scenes without taking Max and Diana as a thing first. I, and I want to talk about it. It's really okay. important. Yeah. I'm glad that you're cool with that. Cause we're going to go, uh, I, I'm going to jump ahead and kind of come back around and stuff like That's that. Fine. But, so um, just to I, set the stage a little bit as yeah. characters, Max and Diana kind of represent, um, this push and pull between what news used to be and what news is becoming. Yes. Um, holy. So, and she talks about uh, in their first meeting in his little office, they're one-on-one at least. There's two really important things that I took away from it. One is the illusion of this um, Miss Matahati and her, and her skeletons in the closet, which is what becomes one of the segments on the show. She calls her, a, uh, I think, a wayward witch of Wall Street. So it kind of mm-hmm. shows that Diana is, it's another developing character line where she shows what she's into, who she trusts, what she's, where she gets her sources from and the kind of person that she, she really is. And then the other important thing is she talks about being at a lecture of Max's when she was a young girl in college in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk to me about what you took away from that. Yeah. Um, I think it's again, she's, Diana is so consumed with television. She's and, television incarnate, which is a, a, I think that's a quote, right? He told uh, me that. Yeah, I believe yeah, so. I believe television so. Television incarnate. You know, and and she she can't help but live inside of a world that. She, that she sees as scripted almost. I think that Mm. Diana scripts things for herself. I think that that's why, you know, when you fast forward a little bit to when she takes the show from Max and she says, well, I told you I didn't want a network, you know, situation over this. I wanted to kind of settle it between you and us. No, she scripted it, man. She knew exactly what was going on. She's, she, she knew the whole time, you know, and when, when he asks her, uh, you know, word around the street is that your Hackett's, you know, eyes in the back room. Kind of, oh, no, no, no. Hackett's a corporate man. And she she nails Hackett. She nails yeah. him. He's a corporate man through and through. You know, he, all he cares about is being on that board. He's a lackey, yeah. But she doesn't let on of the fact that Hackett is 100% going to be her four tires and drive shaft Hell yeah. to get what she wants, you know? Yeah. And I think um, – when I first saw this film, the Max and Diana angle was like my least favorite Agreed. part. Agreed. I, I love I, it when I miss something and then come back to it and realize how fucking important right? it is to the story. And that this storyline is 100%. That when I think the moment where I had my aha moment was when they take when they move in together and how that falls apart in those scenes where he really starts calling her out for a bullshit. The television incarnate line. Um, there's lots of great couplets, he says, where he says, you know, it's not seconds and moments to you. It's the same as beer bottles. It's flashbacks and replays. Uh, it's not human life. Um, 
um, I think something that's really telling about her is her her use and view on sex. Yes. Uh, she says, she, I can be as cold as a man, which is one thing. But <laughs> there's a scene later when they kind of they escape to a hotel room and they actually begin to make love. And she climaxes almost immediately while talking numbers yeah. and specifics about or pro, about programming and television. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she she literally talks about television nonstop from foreplay through sex through mm-hmm. her climax and through the snuggling she's mumbling as she's falling asleep in his arms yeah and and I, that's where that's why i say i think she's so a sociopath, a sociopath. because she has no frame of feeling or or she has no dynamics it's yeah it's, you say you're she's cold like a man because that's a that's a quote from the film that's how she's yeah yeah, yeah 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 but i, I mean yeah shit i mean like at least while it's going on i'm pretty sure i'm focused on the sex part and not anything else like that's the whole point you know um and i think another thing like you cannot talk about max and diana without talking about how max left his wife and like what the like what the fuck was dude thinking like not only like beatrice Strait, the the actress is a beautiful woman but she's cast for a reason max's wife at his middle-aged age the same age as her husband yeah she's fucking hot yeah, you know, like why? Hundred percent. Like, and he and he knows it too. Again, it's I, the, that's so interesting how he's just like, listen. But I think what it represents is the illusion and the seduction of television and news changing its its mode of operation. That even people from the old guard can be persuaded by success and attention and glory to go in this new way, even though they can be frank. And say, I love this thing. I worked on this thing. That being his marriage and his craft of reporting and journalism. But I'm still got to go this way because I fucking have to. Yeah. To keep my life, my career, my sanity. Now he comes around, which is one of the, for me, one of the most interesting arcs to go back to his wife. Um, yeah, yeah. But th- their relationship, it's its so funny for us to admit that we kind of missed it on our first watchings of the film. But its it's just as important as me the minutes logged most important scenes of the film, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's just as the Diana is TV incarnate, their relationship is also the film. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it's the story of the film between two people and their relationship. And and I just think that it's a, it's a beautiful... And also, like, it adds a, human, a humanity factor to the sure. film that really, like, really sinks you in. And it, and it also casts a light on... It, it, again, you go back to that old guard, new guard, you know, transitional thing. But the the difference of these people, the the what you know, where he says things that you think of sentiment, you know, like th- this is real, absolutely real. And I think that I that have just, primal fears. Like I'm not t- talking about menop- men's menopause on Barbara Walters. Yeah. I'm right in front of you. I'm a part of your life. Yes, yes. Yeah. And I think that that is something that just so genuinely translates into today because. I mean, what you know, our our smartphones are nothing more than better TVs. Like that's all yeah. that is. They just figured out programming better. It, I mean, instant gratification machines. Yeah, and I think that I say that to people all the time. Like, you know, you need to be engaged in something outside of that phone because 
what's in there is not real. And people think it's like, oh, you know, it's real. It's real. Well, well, like, I know it's crazy, but like, what happened if the fucking internet went out? Like, and you lost all of your social media posts, like all that time you spent is not real anymore, is it? It's ones and zeros. And that's something that gets reinforced in this film mm-hmm. is the illusion of it all. It's fake, yeah. you know, and that's one of Howard's later monologues, but it, it really plays into the, when you have a society of people like we do in America who are watching TV and consuming things that are completely fake and there to make money for the people who are broadcasting them, that's got to have some effect at some point when, when it's all for profit. It's got to. Hmm. Takes the blood out of people. It does. It does. There, there's probably like 10, 20, 30 quotes to sum up their relationship, but um, when they're on their first date um, and she jokes again, which Max actually does in the beginning of the film to Howard, what kind of show they can make out of their relationship. It's another script to her. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and we'll just supplant that, that. That's how she sees life. Absolutely. This is a script. She's in control. So the next Howard moment is when he has his kind of vision and dream. Um, he says he's been visited by a voice um, and asked why. And he says, which is this is going to be mirrored later in the film, because you're on television, dummy. Yes. His character really starts to be become more unhinged at this point. It becomes, this is, we already referenced the, the fainting moment, um, which happens during this segment of the film. Um, mm-hmm. It becomes more erratic. And I want to talk about his, his digression and his... Uh, his breakdown and the evolution of it and how it becomes more and more ridiculous. And um, yeah, I want to talk about that. So there's one thing I have written here that you share with me that he's on acid, which may be, which may be the most, maybe the most seventies thing about the movie is the conspiracy theory that he's on acid. Well, I mean, Hey man, it's uh, what you've got are just my, my thoughts on it. Like, I mean, because I keep thinking like, it's not really explained and there's something that, that kind of bothered me about it. Right. Yeah. Normally I would just take it as complete and utter. He, you know, he had a mental break. That's it. And he's hallucinating. Sure. But it struck me so odd that after he had that break, Mm Hmm that he turned into exactly what Diana Christensen wanted him to be. So that's what I want to get to. That's the thing I couldn't get off of. Okay. So how much of his state, his mental state, do you think is informed or influenced by his quote unquote, at this point, handlers, his producers? Yeah. Yeah. So at first the man had loss of life. He was having a midlife crisis. Let's be honest. Yeah. But now he's a prophet on TV. And now he has this voice of reason. Now he's visited by God. So how do we get from drunk at a bar with my boy, having a rough time, to visited by God? I know. I mean, it's... it's, I want to take a moment to pause for our listeners. My close friend Joshua Blue, you can't see him, but he just completed a hell of a maneuver pouring himself a drink around his microphone and i think it's worth mentioning moment of applause continue champion status um i I, so i don't know i just thought of okay i think it may be time for my sidebar um 
your Fiona Apple moment of this episode? This episode's Fiona Apple moment. Uh, <laughs> my sidebar this time is mind control using acid. I've been reading what, a what? book. Okay, well, tell everybody what book you've been reading really quick. I've been reading a book. It's uh, called Chaos, uh, mm-hmm. Charlie Manson, yeah. the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. So, you know, I read some crazy shit, but, you know... Confirmed or non-confirmed, we'll leave the conspiracy theories for another time, but the idea that government agencies were learning to control people's minds using acid is floating around in the world. And, and in just, your head right now this week. And in my head. So yeah. as I'm re, you know, as I'm digging in for the for this film, I'm sitting there thinking like, you know, dude kind of has this moment. He turns into exactly what the network wants him to be, and he comes into the office the next day and is describing his state as, you know, this sense of everything is there, and he's tapped into this great feeling, and and he's on the cusp of this universal truth, and like, hey man, that's how people talk when they use psychedelic drugs. So I don't know. I could. I mean, I, again, I don't I think. think- I don't think it's like a ridiculous in here, but you know, it's, it's not, it's a great sidebar, but but I don't think it's a ridiculous theory, but I think really what it gets down to is he is being controlled. The point I'm trying to get to by asking that question and bringing it up is that he goes, he's, he's controlled Mm -hmm. because you're on, because you're on television, dummy. Exactly. That's a great line. And reinforced and And it's echoed and it's echoed later in another Mm -hmm. scene, which I can't wait to get to. Right. Yeah. Um, real quick, before we move forward chronologically here, I want to spend a little, just a few seconds on the, uh, what the, what's the gang called? The, the, oh, the, the Ecumenical Liberation Army? Sure. Can you give your thoughts on that? One little, like, cool trivia thing I want to point out is the Patty Hearst character that is that kidnaps them, has an outburst later as they're negotiating contracts, Um is Walter Cronkite's daughter. Yes, yes. Which is really fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. So what I want to ask you and kind of talk about for a few moments is their purpose in the film. um, How, uh, can you help me out? What Remind me of that character's name. Uh, The great. Maureen Maureen Hobbs. Oh, Maureen Hobbs, yeah. She's kind of. Right. Well, she becomes kind of the agent of the almost the counterpart to Diana. She's also uh, the worst communist I've ever seen in my life. We'll put it that way. Yeah. She calls herself. She says, um, I have the quote here. It's great. It's a good back and forth. She, uh, a, a racist Diana calls herself a racist lackey of imperialist ruling circles. And Miss Hobbs, uh, describes herself as a badass commie explosive Yes. But the worst communist you've ever seen in your life is great. Well, it's a great point because she's posing. She's another fake. She's using this, uh, like, liberating, like, fanatical thing to trick people into thinking it's this, a sincere movement for people's benefit. But really, it's sensational. It's another example of sensationalism in the movie, pretty much. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, I think... The, the, and the reason I call her the worst communist in the in the world is because, and they all are. This whole this oh, whole fictional gang, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, but but it's also that's the thing about this movie is it's true. 
you know, um, we keep saying a... that. So we walk back and describe how these people are fakes or how, uh, like, the news is becoming compromised. But it's not working. They're right. It's true. Yeah. It's almost warranted. Like, you ask yourself, what am I supposed to do? Yeah, I mean, they, they, um, they, there are multiple occasions. Every interview I could get my hands on with uh, either Sidney Lumet or Patty Chayafsky was mm-hmm. the same thing. Um, the only thing in this film that did not happen in television was yes, the very last scene. That is the only thing. Yeah. I saw that Every, book too, and I loved it. I happened. read that. Yeah. You know, somebody made the choice to run a tape of. Uh, um, geez, what's the the actual heiress's name? I'm oh, blanking. Patty Hearst. Patty Hearst. Yeah, they. You know, someone That's like made real. that. They put yes. that on TV, like, and and they kind of blow it up a little. Like, we're gonna turn it into a weekly. Like, we're gonna give it a theme song. It's gonna be a show. But I think they they regularly showed that the like, graphic shit on television. Yeah, choosing to do that instead of telling the public the hard truths of facts of what's going on in their country. Yes. Yeah. Yep, they do, and I I think that the the ecumenical liberation army. Okay. I'm gonna okay. yeah, just butcher. Well, you it. poured that drink. It's fine. You know, I'm, I'm gonna butcher that one. I that's why I uh, kind of just avoided saying it the it's entire time. It's supposed to be I'm, like ridiculous. It's it is though. It yeah. is. Oh yeah, uh, it's supposed to be catchy and a name you remember. The whole thing is. To me, what I really took the most out of that is the fact that the system, the cap, the capitalist system, which is definitely in question in this film, um, has its way of dangling carrots in front of people to get them to chase things and sell out a few percent of their beliefs at a time until before you know it. You're not really fighting for what you used to be fighting for. You're just kind of another cog in a machine. And that's that's really the biggest thing I took from that is those those radicals were able to become swindled into the system just to get money, you know. And it's a tale the, as old as time. Unlike themselves as a as a TV figure by the end of it, you know. I love when they're like in that scene, and I do want to keep moving on, but I love in that scene where they are they're negotiating the contracts and the man's just enjoying some good chicken. Which is, you, you want to hear funny behind the scenes, little tidbit about that? Oh, I also hear Joshua. The actor that played the great Ahmad Khan was oh. a vegetarian, and I think I read that too. He literally had a spit spitting it out. Yeah, every damn time, every time he's just spitting it out, and I found that to be kind of hilarious because in the film, dude looks like he's super fucking into that chicken. Like he's he's a great it. actor. Yeah, he is. There, I mean. Every actor in this movie, bit part from, I mean, shit, Ned Beatty's in this movie for like six and a half minutes and got nominated for an Oscar. Like, every actor in this film is top quality. Every one, you know? Absolutely. So, moving forward chronologically, Max gets the can officially and finally. And Diana is, you know, appointed the showrunner. Um, there's a great scene with um, Robert, don't call me Tom Hagen Duvall's character. Can you tell I like that one? I do like that one. I, I'm a fan as well, so you're not going to okay. find any anyway, spots for me. I'm, I'm looking at here. I want to get a, a fact correct. 
Okay, cool. Um, so Max is fired, um, and Diana takes over. Uh, he tries to defend his friend again in a moment of empathy. Um, and there's this really important thing that Diana does is she uh, tries to paint Howard as the real deal, which again plays into what we were talking about of him being, you know, <laughs> either influenced by a strong arm by a more stronghold power or on acid, whichever theory you choose to believe. <laughs> um, one and the same in my book. Um, and which leads us to his next uh, filmed monologue. Um, it is almost exactly in the middle of the film as far as the running time goes. It is the most famous scene in the film, um, the most quoted, as yours truly did himself, a mere 54 minutes ago. And it is his Mattis Hell monologue. Yes. Um, give it to me. Yeah. I, I, you know, that is, that's just some epic acting. It's, it's epic writing. It's, um, it, it's filmmaking at its absolute finest. It's all aspects of everything working together, firing on all cylinders. Um, and the most exquisite thing about this movie is not only that, not only are you experiencing that filmmaking firing on all cylinders, you're getting a note of reality as mm -hmm. well. Um, because for me, the first time I watched this movie, I just wanted to get up myself and scream it because you do, you get so Isn't that the point. I, it is the point. It is the point. My favorite, my personal favorite, because I'm not going to tell you to, it, you and I talk about this, like, don't tell me to fucking vote. Like he says, I'm not going to tell you what to write to your congressman. I don't know what to tell you. To tell I don't me. know what to tell you. Yeah. I don't know what to do about the depression, but God you damn it, a... you gotta get mad. You've gotta get mad! Yes. I'm a human being, yeah. And, you know, and here again, let's just go ahead and give Diana her props. When those motherfuckers stick their mouths out and they start yelling out she's their windows, so amped. they she, do she nothing but points. prove her point. Oh, yeah, she's right, again. Yes. She's right. Yep. She, she, she runs out the door. How many places is this syndicated? Um, yeah. She's fucking and, right. Yeah, I mean, and it there's just something so sincere and so pure about Howard's about the words that he speaks. I mean, the one the quote from that thing that sticks out to me is I'm a human being and goddamn it my life has, my life value. has value. And it's yeah. you just wish you could hit a button and make everyone in the entire world understand that single principle, you know? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I think as far as the story goes, it kind of sets the second half of the film in, in motion. Um, the film, for me, kind of becomes a series of those monologues um, as also the love story in the film kind of deteriorates mm -hmm. and leads us to our conclusion. So moving along, um, I, I know everyone, I know we're going to chronologically skip scenes and moments. We've probably retroactively touched on them. But moving on to the next monologue is The Tube is Gospel. Mm -hmm. um, what do you even say? Like, where do you start? We better so, find a way. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we're here. Exactly. Um, I, I really, I love the different, um, I didn't love it. <laughs> I appreciated the construction and artistic uh, approach of the, the four or five different sets. It just kind of represents the um, specific uh, micro games that the new media is playing. There's Sybil yes. the Soothsayer, who's, you know, horoscopes and not, not, dang it on that hard or anything but it's it's 
mystery and muddy truth. Mm-hmm. Um, Miss Atahari, who I did a little research, was like a World War II spy, and her skeletons in the closet is just mm-hmm. kind of gossip and sex and the Kardashians, if you will. And then there's the um, the one that I had a really good time reading about is the Ennis Truth Department, and I was like, what is? And I had to keep rewinding and figuring out what that. And I guess it's a Yiddish word. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just kind of represents the sensationalist journalism um, in more detail. And then there's the mad prophet of the airwaves, Howard Beale. And one, I believe that you probably have something to say about is the Vox Populi set. Um, all of these sets are turning. They're keeping the, the audience occupied. They're taking their turns and running their headlines and giving a biased report of the state of affairs. Um, the relationship between that production and Howard Beale's monologue. Yeah, uh, it's that the way that they make that show Mm -hmm. um, is a physical example of what is so hard to see in our news today. Um, I had that kind of I think probably even after the first time I watched this movie, I probably was watching some cable news on a weekend morning or something like that. And I, once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's it's that. Well, I think that I think the irony is that the level of lighting is, is so crystalline and the, the actual filming of it is, is a slightly more polished version of them. What we've seen in the film that it does stick with you the most. It is that music that like Lawrence Welk esque, 70s talk show music and the the level of production is heightened both well it's it's oh it's absolute that yes it's absolute production it's so i wanted to start with the way that it's a it physically shows what you what is so hard to see in today's news with that the way that they flow through five minute segments with commercial breaks until mm. they get to the end where they put something happy and fun and make you feel all fuzzy um but and when you really get down to it, uh, the way that they film it is amazing. And the whole thing is just, it's over the top. And mm. it shows how quickly the network completely co-ops what Howard is doing and ramps it up to the nth degree. And that th- my favorite part about all of it is the way that the truth that she so badly wants is the truth that inevitably leads to the destruction of the entire show. And like, that's one of my favorite things about this film is the way that it's, they're all fighting to have Howard get up there and preach his truth. But damn it, if his truth ever hits anybody in the real way, they're going to be out of a fucking job, you know? And, which is ultimately also, what happens. Yes, and it also goes to show. Well, they not quite, but uh, we'll it <laughs> also it, yeah. It also goes to show that uh, they're willing to spend money. I mean, when you get facts, when you get news, there's a reason why you can read a newspaper and get news because it doesn't. It's not hard. You don't need production value. You don't need all this stuff. When you have people stagehands spinning sets and elaborate you know, sets and costumes and stage design and multiple cameras and all this stuff. What I need a guy at a desk or a woman at a desk reading from a piece of paper with one camera. And that is all I need. And it speaks the truth about everything. You have to ask yourself, 
What is the purpose of that? What, well, the purpose of it is is to get, uh, as he says, 62 million people to watch and only 3% of them to read books and 15% to read newspaper newspapers because if you can excite them, if you can make them feel enticed and entertained while you give them information, you're going to win them over, you know? Although Howard Beale may be under some sort of mind control or delusion or breakdown, he's still a newsman. And I love when he, he reels off these numbers. Absolutely. And, I, and it's a great turn when he has – the man he is and the professional that he is at his core still shines through through this. It does. Um, and and I, I love that. And it's ultimately the unraveling of the relationship between Howard and, and UBS. Is there anything else you want to touch on for that one before we move on to the next monologue? Yeah, I mean a couple of things. I do. Yeah, do it, man. Please. A couple of things because this one is the this one to me is the is one of the two most important monologues of the whole film. Um, the way he goes on about television, the the tube is gospel. The revelations. Television is a is a goddamn amusement park. We're in the boredom killing business. I mean, and then the he goes on to describe how all we do is Kojak always catches the killer and this always happens and the good guy is going to win. And, and that's what I was kind of referencing earlier. It's amazing what happened. And he says, and, you know, and this is in 76. There's a whole generation that knows nothing but this tube. Well, now we're generations deep of people who only know that tube. No. Yeah. Only. And the scene has just such good acting and editing and cinematography and the whole thing is just lush i mean from mm. the way that they film a tv crew filming a tv show and they've got this stained glass window i mean what more it it shows you that the people who produce television know what they're doing they understand psychology they understand humans there's a reason why we watching that film think of howard bill in front of that stained glass window and we think that's iconic there's no other place he should be because he's basically a preacher the later as before the final monologue they're trying to find a replacement for howard bill yes and they find this like billy graham-esque yep. fire and brimstone guy and our girl is furious. She's like, what the fuck is this? Yes. This isn't what I want. Um, Howard is, is next level. And the production is a big part of it. But he's, you know, maybe he is the real deal. <laughs> maybe, maybe she's right. The real deal. Yeah. But the way they, um, I wanted to get your thoughts on the way they like treat the audience. Did I read that it's the same audience every time? That I, I that I did not stumble across. Okay. Uh, the the thing that I came across in that regard is the fact that most of the crew members and stuff you see were actually crew members on the film acting in their own positions. So like these dudes were like the the grips and the these men and women that were running equipment were gotcha. running equipment for the film, but they were also actors in the film because of that. And that's there's a reason that looks realistic. Exactly. It, it adds a completely yeah. another, another layer of realism. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think if from, from here, you kind of get into a next place and the whole tone changes as as we all know but i just the last thing i have to say about that particular monologue is i just every time i watch the news i want to hear that and i just wanted to say that there's a few instances especially the bullshit one i don't know if yeah. i said that already but it's like that's what i want to hear yes. i want to hear someone 
I, honestly, the wording breakdown to me, that's not what that is. That's being honest. Honest. I mean, look at like we said, Max is like, well, he's he's fucking right. You're, but you're spot on. That's what I think most educated and compassionate people want to hear. True. Yeah. Um, real quick, the faint that he does. Yes. I I what I wrote down is fake faint question mark. It's so dramatic and over the top. But he's in his consumption of his 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 plight. I mean, he's probably just ex- physically exasperated. The man was also turned out was sick. Yes. And didn't last much longer after the filming of of this particular movie. Mm. Um but I I think it's interesting that I wrote that. Well, I mean uh, he and that leads to the first posthumous uh Oscar of all time, you know. The second being uh Mr. Ledger. That's correct. Yeah. I mean, um he one of the to kind of go back in the film when he does his mad as hell monologue um they shot one and a half takes of it. Mm. Um, and they shot the first one and Sydney thought, you know, this is great, but just my style is to shoot at least one more, you know, and Peter Finch gets halfway through the second take and he just tell, he, he, he like stopped and he told Sydney like, I'm exhausted. I can't, I can't do this. And the sad part about it is that, you know, in like hindsight that the guy's got a, a heart problem and he probably actually was physically exhausted. Yeah. Um, but when you rewatch that acting performance and you see the face, his his lip quivering, his eyes puffed, his cheeks shaking, his face red, the man was mentally exhausted. Mm. Five minutes, uh, you know, for any of you humans out there who have not had a legitimate emotional outburst that lasted for about five minutes, if you exhausting. have five minutes of pure emotion – pumping through you you are exhausted like you just ran for miles oh and the man had to be feeling it you know and and such a shame such a shame i mean he wasn't that old and what a performance like you gotta think like if if the world hadn't lost him what else would we have gotten you know like uh, again gotta think that so definitely um are you comfortable moving on to the next yes sir yes so the next one um really encapsulates the final breakdown of trust i would say between ubs and howard um what he does is he he calls out the the relationship between other he calls it arab money i believe um the exchange of money um between other countries other entities to make this media empire run so that they can in fact control impair impart information upon the public yeah yeah um there's a few things about this. Uh, first off, from a historical context, um, this film, uh, this particular monologue, really, having read some some books about this exact uh, kind of situation, this monologue really describes the current state of affairs in this country um, almost as good as the next monologue from Jensen does. Mm. Um, they're definitely paired it's one of those one two mirroring moments where this makes this monologue makes uh the network freak out like what the fuck did he just say there's a great scene where um uh frank's it's frank right Hackett. yeah he he checks in with an executive 
to see how they're loving the new broadcast and they're on the east coast and he's on the west coast yes and there's a delay and he just is sitting there grinning with his 70s ass teeth and he says you know how you loving it and the guy's freaking out because there's a delay which is just a really cool device that he that um patty employs there yeah and that's just, the that was gonna say that's the second part for me too yeah it's just good writing yeah it is it's amazing yeah. amazing writing and the way you jump back and forth and um but I think that when you get into the words that Howard actually says, this monologue explains a lot about history. And one thing that I would just be like completely sad if I didn't touch on is in this monologue, he references um, a hostile corporate takeover. He, he doesn't go ahead. I let's do a historical sidebar. Okay. Um, I, I like that. That's a good point. Let's do it. It, it is. So, in his fourth monologue, or fifth monologue, excuse me, uh, Howard references this takeover of the Arabs. And what he's really referencing is a hostile corporate takeover. Mm -hmm. And hostile corporate takeovers have been, I mean, they've been in existence since the beginning of the 20th century. But what they really looked like back then were just uh, a group of men kind of sitting in a room, smoking cigars, drinking sherry, and they shake a hand, and this is the deal we come up with, and that's how it goes. Sounds but gross. in the 70s, you know, and really a little bit in England before that, um, in the 60s, and then coming in, because for those of you who don't know, England literally is the place where modern finance was born, um, and it translated into America. Uh, but in the 70s, they these deals kind of morphed from, from these handshake deals into what we think of as hostile corporate takeovers today, where uh, a, a rich party buys so many share, X number of shares in the company, and then convinces one of the board members to join them for a pitfall, and they basically take a company from one management core to another management core, and they buy it without the other party wanting to sell it. And that is something that started to happen around that time. And you can't help but believe that that's one of the things that is directly responsible for what happened to the news. Sure. The, I mean, ABC, the, I mean, Patty, the, 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 the conception of this film was the fact that Patty Chayefsky read a news article that ABC was going to be bought by a, a multinational corporation. And, and having worked in TV, he knew that traditionally the news department lost money because they weren't entertaining. They were factual and they couldn't make money back. And he knew that as soon as a corporation gets a hold of it, corporations have fiduciary responsibilities to their shareholders to, to maximize the profits. And once that happens, a news department can't lose money anymore. It can't, and at least it can't lose as much. And he saw this from just that one thing and wrote the whole movie. And it's so indicative of all of this, all of it. Absolutely. Speaking of indicative of all of it, the next monologue speech big scene we get i think is a perfect segue from that is jensen's primal forces monologue which is um aside from max's wife whom we mentioned um is the other uh had one chance and fucking nailed it moment yeah of the film yeah. ned Beatty. yeah um 
to, to oh. just to kick this one off, if I can, really quick, a, a funny get it, my boy. Yeah, Ned Beatty story. Two, two little Ned Beatty tidbits. You, that I you and a friend of the show, Ned Beatty. Yeah, dude, I'm going to tell you right now, Ned Beatty is a fucking friend <laughs> of the show. Like, no doubt, that guy. Um, the first thing I want to say is he always, like, after this film and after he got nominated for an Oscar for being in one fucking scene, he worked for a day and a half on this film and got nominated for an Didn't Oscar. Did he fly in on Saturday, rehearse on Sunday, or, like, film on Sunday? on Sunday okay. and filmed on fucking Monday. Like insane, and he got paid for the day he interviewed. So it was a day and a half worth of work, one day of fucking shooting, and the dude gets nominated for an Oscar. Um, but he always used to tell people after this film, uh, "Hey man, take a look at those day player roles because you never know what you're gonna get when you take a day player role." And like I never thought about that, but that's so fucking. That's true. an interesting like, perspective. He he, all, he he just takes a job. Just took a job, a day player role, yeah. one day of work, and the dude gets an Oscar nomination. And n- don't get me wrong, like all kudos to him. I mean that. Oh my god, that it's amazing. Is epic. Um, but big, so funny. The, yeah, that's a good story. Um, the big parallel as far as the film goes that I think is really important is, um, other than the context of his monologue, there's a parallel between Howard's earlier uh, supposed connection with God. Um, the way that it's shot is he's presumably alone in the middle of the night, having this vision and this connection with another worldly being is mirrored again in this scene. Yes, yes. What's also mirrored again in this scene is the power that B's response to Howard asking why me, which is you're on television, dummy. Um, it's not only it's it again, it's not only mirrored physically in the way it's shot, it's a close-up on his face, it's dark, he's he's misty-eyed, he's in a state of wonder. Um thinking he's being connected to this all-powerful being, except the all-powerful being is not only in front of him, but it's more explicit and more obvious to the viewer. It is. It is. Um, It's not mystical anymore. It's monetary, and it's right in front of your face. It is. It is. I mean, there's a lot about this one. I mean, Jensen is... Like you would presume, any... Uh, cutthroat capitalist who runs a company would be Jensen mm-hmm. is smart enough to know that a effective TV preacher just flooded in the film, just flooded the White House with telegrams. Mm. So he sees the power. He knows what's there. It's like a fucking crusade at this point. It is. It's it a, is. It's a and, movement. Well, yeah. And and then that's another thing I'll say is. Uh, th- you, for those who know me, I'm not about the the uh, billionaire trillionaire capitalist movement. But we'll no, that. but um, what I will say is, the more I think about it, like how, who are who the fuck am I to say that a dude like that is not some sort of a godlike? This motherfucker makes decisions that affect the masses. There's there's there is no debating that. I, I These think people decide for us. They do. They decide for more and more people than they're in their family. That's a, 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 a fucking pitfall. No they way. They decide for the world. I they think do. This, I think if we, if we characterize this film as a, was one of monologues, this, film, this monologue is the most honest and direct it in its description of purpose. It describes it the world as it operates today. He uses I, the word fucking galaxy. It's, it's, tot- it's total. And its purpose, 
He describes the way the purpose that money is is given and what it's for, the charade of nations, um, the the things that are made to distract us to believe in from they're made to distract us from the real problem. And he explains it fully, completely, articulately, beautifully, himself posing like a evangelical preacher, which I think is a direct reference to things that distract us from the real problem. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, th- this performance that pose is... with the hand shaking in the back and the pointing. And then he just drops and he, he goes, just drops. And he goes, do you get it? Am, am I getting through to you, Mr. Bill? Do you understand? Yeah. I, I got to tell you, um, I think that there are two moments in the film that I actually ca- can even remotely think to laugh at at this point. Um, that's one of them. Yeah. It's because sobering, it's so, to say the it, least. It is. It's so it's so insane. And uh, Jensen basically described, again, the it's ringer the of this film. 45 years ago, this the holistic guy system of the world. The holistic system of dollars is subatomic and galactic. Subatomic. You're, you're meddling in primal forces, Mr. Beale. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Yeah, you must atone. Okay, and what is that? That's the language of revelations. That's the language of the gospel, and that gets to a point. These men, these because let's get real about it. As much as I don't like it, these people are men. They are white Christian men, and they are seriously into this shit, dude. They are all about what they're doing is for the world and all of that good stuff. As far as the the performance goes i love how he just it's like he flips a switch to use a motif am i getting through to you the thing that gets through to people of i'm gonna use this where i yes. fire and brimstone the handshaking the performance and then switch it right off yeah because he he proves he shows he knows exactly what he's doing that he's in control and that he is he's godlike yes. and he's almost in his matter of fact about it he he is he he absolutely is and if i feel like almost this monologue should be mandatory watching for all 11th grade civics and economics students in this country you should have to watch this and and it should have to be a a true thing i mean a uh, should quote a little bit. No America, no democracy. Only corporate nations yes. of the world. A collage of corporations inexorably determined by the laws of business. That is so fucking and Rand. Like, oh, let's get yeah. out of here. Come on. Imagine a world <laughs> where this is. <laughs> this is your civics and economics class. Yes. Oh. Not, let me imagine not not I'm where we skip the starts the s ends with the library we skip all the yeah we 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 don't skip all that shit and we get to the nitty-gritty and purpose did you just fucking quote i'm just a bill on capitol hill that's that was my civics class like <laughs> let's watch this what is it schoolhouse rock that's how you learn again. <laughs> oh my god, also the 70s, also the 70s, exactly. It's all a circle, it's all circles back around. I mean, but the thing that hits, dude, is like Jensen really, really, really describes the way the world works. I mean, corporate, I mean, 
we at um, the American Supreme Court ratified the constitutional rights of a corporation as those of an individual. That that's not that's not hyperbole here. That's that's fact. It's not hyperbole, and it's just as typical and as it sounds. It doesn't make any sense. None. No. None. It's not a person, is it? But let's yeah. not let's not go down that hole. Let's keep moving with the film. Hold on. One thing I would be remiss, okay, as a photographer and an artist, I have to interject one little And a NoFX fan. Go ahead. And a NoFX fan. There is a beautiful use of camera lenses and depth of field in this scene, and the way they line him with the lamps is just— Oh, yeah. One other thing i got to get in here. With the curtain closing behind him? Oh, that's in the New York City— public library boardroom by the way that's right i read that whole film shot i swear on to god i read that yeah I, I mean, which is amazing but uh, uh one little i can't help but share this with you because first off i want the people listening to this to hear it but more than anything i want you as my friend to hear it uh in the scene where he's filming with with peter finch uh mm-hmm. ned Beatty, while he's giving his monologue Peter Finch is kind of giving him face, trying to make him laugh a little bit, crack him up. And Ned Beatty's like, well, I'm going to return the favor, you know. So he, like, hops up on the table and is, like, making these faces and moving his arms and shit. And, like, someone had to pull him down and be like, yo, dude, uh, the Rockefeller's kind of, like, and donated this table. <laughs> like, if you fuck it up, you're going to jail kind of a thing. <laughs> and he was like, I'll never forget or that. Worse. Like, just, I was about to go to jail trying to make Peter Finch laugh. Like, that just, I can't help but share that. That's, no, a, good that's a good story. So, this meeting, um, inevitably, so it goes to another monologue, the corporate overture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, he submits to Jensen's will. We talked about, yeah, he just does. He does. it. it, it which is kind of amazing to me that, that, <laughs> I mean, another around the camera pour. Th- by JB. You know, thanks this for pointing that out. <laughs> hey, audience, uh, Joshua Blue is an alcoholic, folks. He can't go uh, an hour and a half with multiple well, drinks. As, as a Tito teller, I don't know what it's like. <laughs> um, On that note, Howard, he completely submits. And then, then one thing that can't be unsaid is what that brings into question for the enlightenment of his earlier monologues. Like, mm. if you were so easily persuaded by Jensen uh, to adopt this corporate philosophy and preach the corporate goods, I mean, what... It just, it, it diminishes, the to me, uh, it diminishes the earlier monologues. It kind of takes a little bit of sting out of them. Because mm. he was so obviously persuaded, and uh, and oddly, like the pacing of the film, this might be, yeah. Did I mean, just fall on deaf ears. I don't know. I thought that maybe that was. Well, when when you say pacing, what 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 exactly do you mean? It's almost. It might be like the most. If there is a skippable part of the movie, it just kind of the. We talked about how the second act of the film is the series of monologues, um, intertwined with the the relationship, the love story. And this one, it's it's. I think it's the shortest, right? It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's and he's preaching a new truth. Um, his tone has changed. He's 
it but it is just it's just shorter and it doesn't have the same like gravitas as the other ones do no and and that's on purpose and and yeah that's uh, what i'm pointing out yeah I, I, yeah absolutely and i think that i think that this one is while i think his mad as hell monologue and jensen's corporate overture monologue is or his convincing of howard that the corporate life is the way to go those monologues are the best i think that this monologue 45 years later is the most important because it shows um that they're gonna win and i i don't mean to put it in like team terms like win lose uh but in the reality of things uh, that monologue shows that the corporation, the network, will prevail. They're they're gonna have their say, and it that because there's the debate in the, in the world today. Well, you know, do you really think that you know the owners of CNN really say you can't say this on air? No, they don't. They they probably don't say that, but they determine the right things and they set the guide rails. You know, the guard the guardrails for the conversation and they contain it. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that this monologue kind of summarizes that and points it out eloquently that they're going to win at the end of the day. Yeah. And in fact, when the decision, when they don't like the outcome and the way it changes the, um, so what happens is the, uh, the numbers and the viewership and the reception of the show starts to be in decline starts to go into decline, rather. Um, Diana's having a meltdown incongruence with the relationship that we already detailed is falling apart. Um, this might be a good point to po- uh, point out one of my favorite fucking scenes. Oh, my God. Uh, when they're in her kitchen. Um, Diana and Max oh, are in their kitchen, and they're breaking up. Yeah. There's and Oh, my God. So there's one part where she turns around, and it's this total old Hollywood thing where her, her hand's shaking and the mm-hmm. teacups, and she stops it. And just viciously like cuts away and has this glance of like get yourself together, man. Oh my god, I love it so much. And then he has that great speech. Um, so their relationship's falling apart. He calls her out on the script being over uh, for their on their relationship and how she handles things. And then the relationship between Howard Beale, um, his purpose, and the with UBS. Um, is in full deterioration mode, and they have a choice to make, right? I said, how do we deal with this? Well, the logical thing is fire him, right? No, the, I guess the logical thing is fucking assassinate him? That Okay. I want to make one of my uh, main points. That in researching this film, everyone involved with it, with the exception of Sidney Lumet, and Patty Chayofsky referred to it as satire, as comedy. I love as, that we get into this description. Yeah. As on, on Wikipedia, it says satirical drama. It it does. You yeah. know, um, I think in 1977, 76, when this movie was released, I believe it probably was satire. Um, but now, knowing unbel- what we know, it was know, unbelievable then, right? This is not the the absurdity that this film must have had in 1977 has utterly worn off. Um, you have to ask yourself if they it, 
you have to ask yourself if stuff like this has happened. I mean, maybe not murder, but even some sort of espionage. Like, let's release a secret about this guy to get him off yeah. of our fucking show. Like, I mean, people what, are ruthless, you know? What's what's one way to deal with an absurd problem with an absurd solution? Yeah. I, just, I, I just, th- just that scene when they're all in there and they're trying to figure out what to do and they realize that he's the problem. And they're saying all these other segments work. People love this. And we've lost our 18 to 34 demo, which was our wheelhouse is what we were like, what are we supposed to do? And I believe um, that Frank Hackett says, no, no, I think I'm wrong. I I forget who says it explicitly, but the conclusion that they come to is to assassinate him. Yeah. It's just, what the fuck? Um, It's, it's, uh, and you, oh, and uh, to sum up Diana's character, yeah. This lady finds a way to program it onto not one but two different shows. This could be footage shot by the people who kill him, and it could be live on the news. It's like, the that's music Diana. video within the video. It's Diana right there. And and this scene sums up a lot. Like, okay, Cheney. Okay, let's let's hit Cheney again. That was an hour ago. Cheney, the president of the whorehouse. Okay. He's in the room. He's in the this, room. And he agrees. Sure, let's fucking kill him. Let's knock him off. It's the only option we have to keep this fucking whorehouse running. Because turns out, I kind of like being the president of a whorehouse. <laughs> turns out. And, and and here's another thing. Okay, one thing I cannot let go is you know I'm an I'm a fucking sucker for the the aesthetic symbolism. And one of Sidney Lumet's main things with the cameraman is. Everybody gets corrupted. The only character in this film that does not get the main character, okay, uh, that does not get corrupted is Diana. Diana doesn't get corrupt because she's fucking naturally corrupt. She's, she's already the same from the beginning. She her yes. purpose is upfront. She's yeah. honest. She never lies to anyone. She's straight up as a motherfucker. It's a good point. It's an important point to make for sure. It is. But everyone else get, gets corrupted. And Sydney really, really, really wanted the camera to get corrupted. So when this film starts, you see only naturalistic lighting. It's legitimate source lighting. Again, they shot everything on location. Okay. Unlike Hollywood films shot on a soundstage where you can rig anything you want. They had to adjust to rooms, to settings, so on and so forth. They filmed this naturalistically for so much of the movie, but slightly. Over time, the lighting gets less naturalistic and more romantic and more dramatic until what you end with in this scene where they decide to literally assassinate Howard Bill on live TV is what Sidney Lumet call, or Sidney Lumet, excuse me, little fuck up. Oh, we, yeah. uh, we did it anyway. Uh, <laughs> Sidney Lumet describes as a ford commercial oh the yeah lighting is so meticulous it's so it's dramatic. Only like it's only like pools of light or something it is it, it yeah. absolutely and and i just find that little tidbit so so beautiful that as an artist that that someone is thinking of the aesthetic like what can i do to the aesthetics to drive the whole story home and i just love that no agreed oh shit you know what i just accidentally did What's that? Pulled up the movie. Uh oh. We only got time for that, okay. y'all. Time to watch it again. Um, I want to start winding up and and kind of putting an end cap on our thoughts on on what the movie has to says as a whole. I'm really glad we touched on the historical significance and some of the some of that early on. 
Um, I think it's a really important part of the movie. Uh, awards for this for this pro, this, uh, this movie. So film. it was nominated for a lot. But before you get yours in, I just want to get mine in. This picture was nominated for best picture. With yeah, oh my god, yeah. Let's talk about it before we reveal who won. Just it don't okay. Don't say who won. I won't. Yeah. Say who it was nominated with, and then tell us who won after. Let's have well, a moment. I'm I'm gonna leave one out. I think because I that one didn't really matter to me. But this film was nominated for best picture with two other films that didn't win, known as Taxi Driver and All the President's Men, which are. Two of the best films I've ever seen in my entire goddamn life. Let's I think it's real. really, I think it's really interesting that all the presidents men, that that was in the same pool of nominations. I think that's really cool. I do too. This uh, post Watergate world. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think that's really cool. And so, so who's gonna the, do the, the who's gonna do the honors for the people who don't know? Like what one? Take it away, my friend. Let them know. Let them know. Joe Adrian. Fucking Rocky! Best picture, motherfucker. Get the fuck out! It's a great film, but come on! I can't believe it! Well, I have something to say about that. In this post-Watergate, post-Vietnam world, we have films... On com- all three of the Taxi Driver, All the President's Men and Network are all commentaries on on what the world's going through. You know what we needed? Someone to, to love. for and someone to yes! love. Yes. Listen, yes, the Academy so fucks true. a lot of shit up for me. But and at first I was like, what the fuck when I saw this? But in retrospect, I kind of love this is a podcast about network, okay? But it is network being a culturally aware film. This is a culturally aware moment. And Absolutely. I think it's I think it's I think it's cool and it makes me smile. I agree. I I think the artist in me was like, holy shit, really? Those three films lost Rocky? to Rocky, but then the the realist in me is like, yeah, okay, I get it. Like damn, I was rooting for Rocky so damn hard. Like, who let's do it, dude. This, yeah, who doesn't? This love is it? the Rocky sidebar right here. Okay. Rocky is a great film, folks. We're we're probably not gonna do a podcast about it, but you should know Rocky is is fucking legit. I fucking want to be snobs. Um, okay, if I can, I know we're towards the end here, but there's a couple of things I just want to get out there for people to like soak in and love. Um, Patty Chayefsky uh, was a playwright, and all the people that made this movie felt very much like it was more like making a play. And I wanted to note for you geeks out there, uh, Patty's credited as by. Patty Chayefsky, not written by, not screenplay by, not story by. And that was very specific to the fact that he comes from theater. I think uh, it came across a few times in my light research. I just want to give a shout out to my buddy. You worked your ass off on, it. like I said in the beginning, like this is in your your personal wheelhouse. But just like you sinking your teeth into this it was really fun to, to, to listen to. But what I came across in my half-assed internet research, it was always kind of, Sydney, so Sydney Lumet, Twelve Angry Men, um, mm. ensemble cast. That was kind of his thing, right? So his his role as a corraler and director was really 
consecrated and obvious. Murder but, on the Orient Express. Yes, just to, yes. To add one, because of that course, yeah. I'm same. blanking on on all the other ones. I'm sure they're they're fucking great. They're no Rocky, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Yo, Adrian. Yo, Adrian. <laughs> um, that this is really Patty's movie. Um, he it is. He was he he was he went on to win other Oscars for. His original screenplays. I think he's one of the the only person to win three. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna is... ask. There's some. There's a couple of things. If I can really, really, really fucking fast, I, I didn't get to really dig into it, but I think Patty might be like the most. If you go for percentage of nominations versus wins, might be the most successful writer in Oscar history. And also, here's another thing I came across: Sidney Lumet had like 17 actors get nominated for acting performances from the I want, I want to be on that guy's team. Yeah. Uh, Fuck yeah. So so our boy Patty uh received three Academy Awards for Marty, uh the hospital and network. Yeah. Original screenplay. And I think that's really important to sit yeah. on and impress that it's a, this original idea. Not only coming from a theater background and um, it, obviously, also television like we put out, but this is an original, not adapted, not um, altered from some other source. This is a like a germinated real idea, and I think it's a really important part of of the film as a whole. He um, called Sidney Lumet two years before the script was finished, and he asked him, "Sidney, would you be interested in working on a movie about television?" And Sydney said yes. And Sydney says that two years later he got the script. And in his whole career, he's never changed less on a script than he did for this one. And he said that um, he maybe changed three words. And something I just found out about two hours ago, actually, was that in like 2005 or six, this this particular screenplay was voted one of the top 10 screenplays of all time. And it makes sense when you really, I mean, there have, I can tell you now. It's astounding, man. There is, there's not a film out there that has more uh, superbly delivered monologues than this one. There is no film out there that, that will rival this one in monologues. Like, it's just, just not. And, and, and it, it's an incredible film. And like, so the, the film one. the the film is in AFI's top 100 films of all time. It's in the National Library of Congress. It's an Academy Award winning film. It's also in the Writers Guild Hall of Fame and the Producers Hall of Fame, which I think is really interesting. The Producers Guild being like the lesser known but uber exclusive award show of award season. Yeah. Um, but being a part of those two guilds Hall of Fame, I think is really interesting. And I'm sure there are other ones that have that feat. But I would say the same thing that that's that's a really cool and interesting. This is just a really fucking important movie, man. It is. It it absolutely is. And I think um, if I could end personally, my my own thinking about this is something we hit about earlier about how a lot of the people involved thought it was a comedy, and it's referred to it's yeah. labeled as a the, satire. The tone is you important know. to express. Yeah. But the two main forces. Outside of the actors, so Sydney and Patty, they referred to this movie, and this is straight from Sydney. Uh, 
not as satire, but as pure reportage, right? So my dumb ass like looks up. Can you reportage. say that? Can you say that as Rocky? Uh, yo, it's uh not satire. It's, it's poor reportage. <laughs> that was my hey, best take. I got nothing. Hey, Adrian, what time do you get off? What time do you get off? How how is it that that's what we wind up talking about? Rocky. Okay, Rocky wins. Everybody, that's the network. <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, uh, I just want to say any lingering thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, Let's I got one up. lingering thought. It's not going to be what you think, but oh, I just want to okay. say, Chase, I enjoy talking about movies with you, sir. And this is going to be a long and fruitful endeavor for us, and I'm very very excited about it. That's all I want to say. Yeah, I appreciate that, man. Anybody listening, we're figuring this out as we go. And as I said and spoke to you guys in the first episode, uh, we're lovers. We just like to geek out, and we're having fun. We also want to have a good conversation. We want to have purposeful, intellectual, uh, meaningful conversation about what's going on, but we're not going to take ourselves too seriously. Um, so I think that about wraps up our conversation on 1976 Network my man. That's a wrap. It's been one goddamn hell of a show, Joshua. I will talk to you next time, my boy. Later, my friend. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Between now and then, please, if you don't mind, give us a like and or follow on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify. More importantly, between now and next time, please be safe and please be kind. Thanks, y'all. <laughs>